Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Can you hear me now? Well, if I'm mumbling, if I'm not speaking really well, and maybe you can't. And if that's the case, there are some things that I may want to work on with my voice. And if you have such medical conditions like strokes or autism or other disabilities, there is a profession that we often don't hear about very much that is absolutely essential to recovery. And that would be speech and language pathologists. Today, we are joined by Amy Lauer. She is representing the University of Hawaii Speech and Hearing Clinic. And this is a wonderful place located down by the medical school in Kaka'ako that helps to teach people who have either not yet learned the ability to speak or have a hearing disability, or also helps people who have lost a level of functioning, whether it be from a medical event or whether it be from something that uh, has occurred in their lives that make them unable to speak and or hear as well as they could. And not having those two abilities can make a huge difference. So join me in welcoming Amy Lauer to the show today. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Now, you know, I hear about speech pathology, and I just think, well, if you can talk, you probably don't have a pathology. And if you don't know how to talk, okay, maybe you need to learn. But it seems like we all learn it when we're kids. This is actually a really complicated field, and I just had no idea. So tell me, what kind of training does it take to go into speech and language pathology like you have? To become a speech-language pathologist, it requires a master's degree in communication sciences and disorders. And then following your master's, you do a one-year clinical fellowship in usually an area of interest for yourself, whether it might be working in a school or within a hospital or skilled nursing facility. So those would be some of the places that you would find individuals who would need your services. So what types of medical conditions? I mentioned a few at the top of the show, but what are the most common types of conditions that you would see in your clinic or that you're aware of that your profession would see? I think most commonly when people think about speech-language pathologists, they'll think about maybe someone working in the schools uh, with a child that may have a language delay or an articulation disorder, typically developing with difficulties with R's or S's. Um, but we also work with clients who stutter. We also work with adults, like you had mentioned, who have had a stroke or a brain injury, uh, as well as then maybe some that have progressive conditions, such as Parkinson's. We will work with them on strengthening their voice to be able to maintain their communication. So what sorts of things can someone do? Let's talk about young, let's sort of go age-wise. Let's talk about youth. So when you have a child who can't articulate or who stutters or who doesn't get some of their words, their S's or their or their R's out correctly, what are some of the things that you can do in a therapy session? Is it just learning that letter again and again and repeating it? What are some of the creative ways that you can make that whole process a little bit more fun for a child, but also more effective in the training aspect? Well, engagement is the foundation when working with kids. So we do try to integrate activities to where they're really learning and they might not even recognize initially that they're learning, whether it's particular phrases or particular sounds. Another part that we do is often working with the families. We work with early intervention. So that's going to be clients that are between birth and three years of age. And at that point, we're actually going into the homes and talking with the families on how they can engage with their children and make a language-rich environment to help 
their children's language develop more naturally. So you mentioned language-rich environment. Does that mean that you want to have people communicating, speaking, not just, I mean, not like any of us do this, just looking at our phones and doing text messages all day? I mean, is it just that you want to have children grow up hearing a lot of language around them? Certainly a, a variety of language and interaction is always positive for any child. Uh, We're going to work with families, too, on how to maybe get on their level and engage with the child, how to model what would be the next level of developing language. So they're learning to model and expect what to hear from the child. And then that helps them to know if it's not going well when they might need more assistance. Exactly. Yes. What would be a situation where you might see someone a little bit older? What other kinds of conditions might you be treating that would help someone maybe in their 20s or 30s who is having some type of speech disorder? Are there chronic medical conditions? Do you see people who, like if they scream a lot or yell a lot and they start losing their voice and they have vocal cord damage, what what causes that? Oh, certainly, yes. There is a, a area of our field that focuses specifically on voice disorders. So those that may be professional speakers that are having difficulty maintaining their voice, teachers very commonly are experiencing difficulty. Uh, And we'll work with them on proper breath support, proper projection, not straining their voice so that they're using their voice in the most optimal manner. Now, you also mentioned those who might have strokes or those who might have Parkinson's or some reason why they don't have that speech ability. They can also benefit from speech and language services because in that case, they may need to just work on, you you mentioned somehow, keeping the voice projected and keeping it forward and sort of strengthening the sound of it, particularly with some of these more progressive debilitating disorders. Yeah, voice is a common symptom that changes, like you mentioned, for adults that would have Parkinson's. And it's an area of our field that actually shows that our therapy is really effective. There's a program called the Lee Silverman Voice Therapy that we offer at the clinic that is a intensive therapy but has long-term gains and maintenance for those that have had Parkinson's to be able to keep their voice strong. And we really see when you're able to maintain your voice or your speech, you maintain your communication and it connects so strongly to quality of life. I can imagine that completely because if you don't have the ability to communicate and your life is spent in some way, aren't we all communicating at every time for for one reason or another, then that just takes away another one of your essential daily activities that makes you more dependent on other people to help you with that. Now let's talk about people post-stroke. So there are people who might have had some type of a brain event that has resulted in them losing speech. If it's related to a stroke and we don't have any recovery of that area of the brain, what are some of the things that can be expected with speech? I mean, I know I think of patients that I've seen who have had strokes, who have difficulty with not necessarily saying a word, but word finding. And then once they find the word, they might be able to get it out, but it takes a while to get to that point. Are there some things that can help people like that? 
Absolutely. So we will work with them on word finding strategies that they can implement with those that they're speaking with. We also do a lot of caregiver training as well. Uh, we like it when clients and, and their caregivers or partners are able to join us in the clinic because oftentimes there's a por- portion that we do that is restorative and then there's a portion that we do which is really supportive. So that can involve caregiver training. It could also involve maybe a development of a communication book, common words that that individual might use. So then they can use that as a reference and recall those words more easily. And so you mentioned that restorative aspect. So if you have an ability and you've lost it, we want to restore you to that ability. And then you also want to be able to keep that going, that sustainability of that particular feature. Now, can people do, you know, I think about physical therapy and they say, okay, so go home and do this many squats and this many lunges and this many exercises of your knee. Are there similar things that people can do at home when you're talking about speech therapy? Yeah, absolutely. So some aspects may be practicing some of that word recall. Some of it is motor related too, on on the positioning of your lips and your tongue as you're speaking and making sure that those neural connections on motor patterns are reinforced and reestablished. I'm learning a whole lot as we're speaking. Speaking of speech and language, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Amy Lauer. She is a speech and language pathologist. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what this field has to offer, who might benefit from their services, and what we have right here in the islands that actually is using some of the new telehealth, telemedicine technology to really make sure that we can outreach to anyone who lives in Hawaii. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ulupono Initiative and Impact Hub Honolulu Co-working. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, here with speech and language pathologist Amy Lauer, and she is here from the University of Hawaii Speech and Hearing Clinic, located down near Kaka'ako by the medical school. And so what we're talking about today is what is speech therapy? What does this particular activity do and how does it help people who need it? We've been talking about how it can help restore function for those who lose it. It can help acquire function for those who haven't had it yet. There are some other aspects that I think about with voice. And you mentioned teachers or professional speakers. And I often wonder for folks who do have vocal strain, you know, when people come in and it's not like an illness, like a viral laryngitis, and they just notice that their voice is different in some fashion. My first thought is vocal rest, which means don't be talking, it'll get better. But there may be some other things that they need to do. How would someone be able to identify if they had a problem, like a vocal cord polyp or something that was more medically affecting their voice? And is there some sign that someone would say, yeah, I have that, whatever it is, hoarseness, raspiness, or something, that would give them an indication that they need to get checked out? Well, certainly if it's a persistent chronic problem. So you mentioned laryngitis, which may come and go. You may have it for a few days or a week. But chronic hoarseness lasting more than two or three weeks would be reason to explore a little bit further. First recommendation would be a referral to go see your ENT. They are going to be able to then visualize and actually see at the level of the vocal cords to know if it's a polyp or a cyst or a nodule, or if it's really just hyperfunction, which is relatively common 
Uh, you mentioned strain, and people with chronic persistent strain typically will have reduced respiratory. They may be breathing very shallow. And when you breathe shallow, then you'll find that those laryngeal muscles tighten. And that tightness can then lead to that strain or hoarseness. So we'll work with them on achieving abdominal breathing and then integrating that so they're using it while they speak throughout the day. Well, and it almost makes me wonder if somebody is having those sorts of difficulties and they do have some kind of vocal pathology, whether it be a polyp or a nodule, in that situation, how much does reflux have to have to add with that? Because I, I see a lot of folks who wind up at ENT because they're having vocal changes or some kind of a problem. And so often I'm hearing or I'm seeing that they have some sort of acid reflux that's actually affecting their vocal cords. It's causing the change in their voice. They're not coming in with symptoms of reflux. They're actually coming in with symptoms of vocal changes. But all of this is related to stomach acid. Yes, just uh, the positioning of where our larynx or our voice box is, is right at the top of our esophagus. So if we have any stomach acid coming up, that's going to land on these soft tissues around our, our larynx and inflame those vocal cords. And when those vocal cords become inflamed, we find our pitch drops and it's going to be more hoarse or raspy. So there is often a connection and we may coach people on what some of the recommendations are to be able to manage their reflux, but also direct them to be working with their physicians. Sure, because that can be treated with medication, but it can also be treated with some other things, eating smaller meals, not laying down after eating, not wearing tight clothing. So there are some things that can help to reduce the reflux, which would in event in essentially affect the voice as well. They might hear that better tone or quality of voice that helps them to realize they're improving. Now, along with voice comes hearing because those two things are directly connected. And if you don't have the hearing to know that you're not speaking correctly, you'll never notice it because you don't have that that internal ability to know what it is that you're saying. You just see people around you might not understand. So speech and hearing are so tightly connected. What sorts of problems do you see that are common in your particular area that relate to just the inability to hear correctly? Well, I think in children, as they're beginning to develop their speech sounds and their awareness of sounds, and even that connection of what a sound is to what is written in words, that there can be an impact that if you're not hearing those sounds correctly, you're, it may in time come to impact how you articulate those sounds or even impact your reading and your literacy in the long run. For our adult clients that may have more of a progressive hearing loss, there's some studies that are actually looking at how that may impact their ability to then maintain communication. They may find that they're a little bit more withdrawn, not going to social events, larger parties, or out to restaurants. And then with that withdrawal, it be kind of becomes a little bit of maybe a language desert, that they're just not getting the same input. They're not as active in those language areas of the brain, and it can bring to an isolation that they're seeing maybe connected with a declining of cognitive function. Well, and that's huge. I mean, there have been studies that have been done that have shown that loneliness, and this, this, this surprised me, loneliness as a risk factor for cardiovascular death was actually a greater risk factor than smoking. Wow. Shocking. Than diabetes. 
I know. And then, then weight issues. So that loneliness, just not just having that social isolation has such a dramatic impact on someone's ability to like longevity, like seriously, heart attacks and strokes when you're older. So that social component, I think, is critically important and often undervalued. And because of that, if there is some way that we can help people as they get older to maintain that, those communication skills and those abilities, literally, it can be life-saving. Now, I often think back to <laughs> to my early days where, you know, usually at some point in the show, I make fun of myself, Amy, and this is about when. Mm-hmm. So I know when I was younger, I used to have a lot of ear infections, a lot of fluid in my ears, and that affected my hearing. And I remember sitting there in first grade and the kid next to me had on a headset, so I put on mine and he was circling one thing, so I was circling what he circled. We were supposed to be listening to different things, but I couldn't hear it. I didn't know that I was having a problem other than some a teacher looked and went, wow, she's a really smart girl, but she's failing this. Um, you know, she's cheating off the boy next to her who's listening to something else. Mm-hmm. So I finally had my hearing tested. And it was determined that it was because of chronic fluid in the ears that became the issue that was affecting my hearing. How can parents notice if that's going on with their children? Because, you know, I often wonder for kids who have difficulties, is it because they literally, they don't, it's not like they're not listening to mom and dad. They can't hear mom and dad. What can parents do and how often should kids get hearing screened? We do recommend that children would receive an annual hearing screening. Just as you would go to the dentist and have preventative care, you can go in the same way and check in. Those aspects of colds or fluids in your ears can come and go. So a lot of children will experience temporary hearing changes. So it's good to keep a regular maintenance just to know the status of the hearing because it can change over time. Is it screened for in schools these days? Do you know? I am not 100% where they are with screening in the schools. Yeah, I don't know. I just, you know, I remember that I was just called out and I was like, yeah, I can't hear you. So this is great. And, you know, once you get that treated and, you know, luckily in my case, I didn't need eustachian tubes. Some people do. And it really can be curative. I mean, and that just helps. And then you hear better and life goes on after that. So when you're talking about hearing for people as they get older, a lot of times I'll just say to patients, hey, listen, is your husband or wife or your loved one Are they turning the TV on way too loud? And a lot of times they are. It might be a slow progressive thing. How often is it something simple like just clean the wax out of your ears? Oh, it certainly can be. Good uh, good hygiene and maintenance is is important. Um, But I think that, again, just checking routinely is is beneficial. And if there are concerns, there's so many options nowadays. I think we think back to, I know the hearing aids that my grandfather had that were large and they would make the squeaking sound when we were out to dinner. And so much has changed. Now they're small, they're remote, they can be Bluetooth to your television. So the technology advances in hearing aids is really remarkable. And I think that the more that we can um, make people aware of what offerings are out there, the more people may be comfortable with using such appliances. We're going to talk about some of those new technological advances in just a few moments. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Amy Lauer, speech and language pathologist from the University of Hawaii Speech and Hearing Clinic. And when we come back, we're going to hear about some of the new advances in technology in some of the hearing aids and some of the other devices that are used to help people with their speech and language and hearing and just make sure we can all keep on communicating as long as possible. We'll be right back. 
Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, and Ekahi Ornish Lifestyle Medicine. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Amy Lauer. She's a speech and language pathologist working out of the University of Hawaii Speech and Hearing Clinic. And we're talking today about what speech and language pathology is, what sorts of conditions can they treat, and how important is it for all of us to be able to speak, communicate, and have our hearing. Now, right before the break, we were just talking about some of the new incredible things that have occurred in the world of hearing aids. So you're right. I think of these old bulky hearing aids that you think of the people wear. And yet these days, they're so different. You mentioned Bluetooth technology. I had a uh, I had a patient say to me a few days ago that they had set up their hearing aid and their cell phone. Yeah. Now and you can change settings from your smartphone. So they actually were able to talk through their hearing aid, they could regularly talk, but that their hearing aid would tell them when the phone was ringing and no one else was hearing it. So if it took them a little while to get used to that. But what are some of the new technological advances? How much better have we gotten at hearing aids? Because it used to be sort of this almost a one-size-fits-all. It was like one size, few settings, a little adjustment, it's yours. And now everything is customized. You can actually get custom-made hearing aids. Yeah, so it's custom fit for the the shape of your ear, for the particular hearing loss that you would have, as well as then what some of your preferences are related to maybe your communication environments. So you could set it so that if, is there a way that you can adjust settings? So you have sort of the I'm out at the noisy restaurant setting versus I'm home watching TV versus I'm having a quiet conversation. Are there ways you can make those real-time adjustments? I think they can. you can make those adjustments, and a lot of the devices are able to make those adjustments online for you as well. So you don't even have to feel like one setting is the only setting you have. Correct. What are some of the reasons why people might tell you that they're reluctant? I hear people all the time that say, yeah, but I don't want to get a hearing aid. I'm fine. My hearing doesn't bother me that much. Maybe they just don't have the knowledge of how much it's actually limiting or isolating them. What are some of the reasons that people give you that they don't pursue these sorts of things? I think that there is kind of a stereotype with it, um, as well as I think that that sometimes it's a matter of kind of a comfort initially with that isolation. I know my grandfather had commented when he had initially gotten hearing aids, he heard a lot of sounds that he hadn't heard before, and it was almost a little overwhelming. And what we have to encourage those people do to do is hear, wear their hearing aid over time because everything initially gets louder, but your t- your brain will begin to make those adjustments of what it needs to ignore and what is important. So you're not always hearing the traffic at the same level, but I think sometimes when people initially get their hearing aids and they put them in, they hear a lot. So it takes some time and you need to encourage them to keep wearing their hearing aid so then it will improve. So really, it's that brain training so that your brain learns how to filter things out. So wearing it for an hour a day isn't really going to be helpful. You've got to wear it continually. Yes. It's not something you just put on when you're headed out. You want, like you said, brain train. So it's knowing how to adapt to that input. What are some of the most common surprises that you hear from folks once they've taken advantage of some of the audiology type services you offer speech and language services what surprises people the most what would be 
the most shocking thing that somebody says that they never knew about your services and now they found out? I think overall, it kind of comes back to that connection of communication and quality of life that they maybe don't realize how much they have withdrawn. They don't realize how it's affecting them emotionally. And to see clients have a change in affect, to have that light back in their eye, uh, to have confidence in their communication that really transcends just what happens in your therapy session is really what I know I take away as a clinician and you really see empowering for the clients. I can only imagine someone who finally comes out of their shell in a way. Yes. You know, you see that occasionally in various aspects of medicine. And I think in your particular field, what a great opportunity for someone to just become engaged and interactive and involved in their community, even in their physical therapy, speech therapy visits with you, that you actually see that they actually start to hear you and understand it and make some make some progress towards something that allows them to stay engaged and interactive. Now, we've talked a lot about hearing aids and, and audiology type testing, and there are some ways that people can find out if they have hearing loss. There are great tests that they can do. What are some of the things that they can do when we talk about speech and language? You know, how will someone have that insight to know that maybe they have a problem? Do Is it relying on other people telling them? Is it hearing their own voice not sound the way that it used to? What are some of the tools that they can identify that might help them? Well, I think anytime someone is feeling a change in their speech, whether it's their vocal quality or their ability to articulate or project, that it's always good to see what supports are available to be able to help them. So often we are working with clients like after some sort of life event, whether it is a stroke or whether a brain injury or a diagnosis, maybe of, like we had said, Parkinson's or even ALS, that would then prompt that referral to the speech therapist. And then we'll be able to work with them through kind of the course of either their recovery or the progression of the disease to be able to support their communication at all stages. Now, you'll often see people here on Oahu, but that is not what that is not limiting to you any further, that you're actually your clinic has started using telemedicine type of services to try and help people on neighbor islands. How has that gone? That's been uh, really exciting for us at the UH Speech and Hearing Clinic. In the last year, we were able to start providing services. So far, we have provided speech therapy to clients on, on the Big Island, as well as Molokai. And it is a really fantastic opportunity because at this point, we're providing services directly into the patient's home. So instead of them kind of coming into our world, which can sometimes be a more sterile clinical environment, we get to work with clients in their real life environment. And it really helps promote the generalization of whatever skills we're working on, whether it's working on their fluency or whether it's working on their cognitive skills and their planning to be able to work with clients in their home environment can just really make an impact. And it brings us into their space. We get a, a much better sense of how we can help our clients that way. Well, and I think also it's the convenience factor is just unheralded. I mean, here you are th suggesting that the services that you provide can be continued even if you have to fly back home and home is not so close to where the clinic is. 
Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of time and cost savings, it's really a strong benefit for those clients. And on our neighbor islands, we have an even greater clinician shortage of speech-language pathologists. So not all individuals have opportunities for access, even in-person access on some of the islands. So this is a way to not only get in the home, but provide them services they might not otherwise be able to access. So where can people find you? We are located in Kaka'ako at 677 Alamoana. So it's the old Gold Bond building located uh, just in front of the School of Medicine. And if they wanted to call, if they decided they wanted to find out more information, is there a phone number? Yeah, it's 808-692-1580. Put you on the spot there. Made you grab your phone number. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Amy Lauer, for coming in today from University of Hawaii Speech and La- Speech and Hearing Clinic, staffed by speech and language pathologists and audiologists and others, to really help everybody so they can keep their communication skills, not just in the beginning of their lives, but throughout their entire lives, which we know helps to keep people healthy and keep them interacting. And truthfully, studies have shown living longer. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org or you can find us on the app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week on The Body Show.